We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Greg Olson, here to tell you about my new podcast, TE1. On the show, I had a chance to talk to my fellow tight ends who have revolutionized the position from an extra lineman to a dual-threat superstar. And just like my guests have changed the game, this year, NFLSundayTicket.tv is revolutionizing your NFL viewing experience. Stream all the live out-of-market NFL games every Sunday on your favorite devices and never miss a moment from your favorite players. Visit NFLSundayTicket.tv and use the promo code GREG88 at checkout and get 15% off your subscription. That's NFLSundayTicket.tv and the promo code GREG88. Subscribe to TE1 and get NFLSundayTicket.tv, an unmatched dual threat. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. Pick number 10 will be made by the Phoenix Suns. Welcome to the Timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. My name is Mike. I'm here, as always, with Sam. Sam, how are you doing? I'm good, Mike. Uh, I am excited to talk about the elusive, scary concept uh, that is the NBA draft that we have to come to every year. Um, We did an episode on the NBA draft like three months ago at some point during the pause before the NBA restart. Um, but now, obviously, with the lottery just the other day, it was time to to kind of bring back in a, a couple of experts and talk everything from strategy to specific prospects. So um, it should be fun. Yeah, the Suns officially have the 10th overall picks. So now there's some clarity on what we're talking about. We don't necessarily have to cover LaMelo Ball. 
I'm going to preface everything that we're going to talk about on this podcast by reminding people that Sam and I are not draft guys. In fact, <laughs> this time of year, we should t- change the name of our podcast to Not Draft Guys because we Probably. say that every single episode. We, but, I say it every single sentence during these episodes, basically. <laughs> we have two guests. We're going to have Spencer Perlman coming on later, who actually was a consultant for the Phoenix Suns in the 2019 draft, so he has some pretty interesting stuff to talk about there. But right now, joining us... Uh, from the Blue Wire Podcast Network, host of the In the Know podcast, which is a New Orleans Pelicans podcast, along with a writer for Bourbon Street Shots, which is the blog that covers the New Orleans Pelicans, Shemit Dua. Shemit, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, but I feel like expert is this label that I got to live up to now, and it's going to upset some <laughs> people that are actually experts. I'm I'm going to call myself a draft pretender because that's, that's what I am. I like to pretend that I'm knowledgeable about the draft. Well, I think that the reason we brought you on is a specific article that you wrote that is not necessarily about like the draft class, if you will. Schmidt, name me your top hundred fifty prospects. <laughs> yeah, can you give us right your big, your yeah. big, big like, board? No, it's 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 not like that. It's <laughs> not like a hundred fifty person big board. Number one is Josh Green. And then number two is... Ne- Can I just name all the Arizona people? I feel like I'm playing to your yeah. audience. Yeah. Number two, Nico yeah. Mann. I mean, we almost have more people in Australia than Arizona at okay, this Okay, Australia. Let's LaMelo Ball, number three. I feel like that's a good place for him. <laughs> There's a lot of people that are actually going to be happy about you saying that. Actually, they'll be mad that you didn't say number one overall. Uh, but, but what you wrote recently was about draft about drafting sort of as a concept you wrote about the idea of drafts and you look through a lot of historical data to try to come to some conclusions about what the smartest way to draft is is that a good way of describing what you wrote yeah i feel like that's pretty accurate and what like just from a general sense what were you trying to accomplish so this all kind of started when i was trying to look at drafts and what you can call a draft success because so many times you can look at a guy and I'm going to, I'm going to name Kelly Oubre as that guy because I feel like he's on the suns and it again, it's a great example, uh, uh, yeah. example that you guys can relate to. So you look at Kelly Oubre, he was drafted at 15th and what would you guys say? Like for the 15th pick, that's a pretty successful pick, right? That is an absolutely a successful pick, especially, you know, spoiler alert. I've read your article I know what the data <laughs> says. So, yes, for the 15th pick, that Kelly Oubre is pretty good. Exactly. Uh, so Kelly Oubre, yeah. in, in general, people are going to, he's going to go down as a success for the 15th pick. He's going to be a great pro. He's going to contribute in a lot of different ways. People will be like, man, Washington did a great job there. But that doesn't sit right with me because what did Washington really get out of Kelly Oubre? And he should not be marked as a success for Washington, in my opinion. Because if you look at his career in Washington, for four years, essentially, he was a below replacement level player. Or right around replacement level. He didn't contribute anything towards them. And they didn't extract any value from him when it came time to trading him. You know, they got that expiring Trevor Ariza, who they thought would change their season, just like many other teams have been fooled into thinking he's going to change their season. Um, <laughs> including the Suns. Including their Suns. But right, you know, like yeah. what what did they get? They got nothing. They have nothing to show for four years of Kelly Oubre. Why should he be a success for the team that drafts him? And so my goal was figuring out, one, you know, how do you kind of define success? 
And really, as a team, if you have these guys that don't produce for you and you don't give value, whether it's on the court or via trade, then, you know, what is the sort of success rate league wide and how should that change the way you draft if that success rate isn't high? I didn't know what that success rate was. I, you know, I just kind of took an eyeball glance around the league and I'm like, why aren't there many homegrown first round pick role players playing for contenders? You know, and there just aren't. I think over the past like 20, 10 years, like the best 20 teams have like averaged like maybe one that's contributed. And I'm like, why, why is that the case? You know, why, why are all these role players outsourced? Um, and, you know, why, why is it that when people are like, you know, maybe we should draft uh, this guy. He's going to be a safe pick. He's going to contribute right away. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we may not hit the star upside variance on him, but we'll be able to get a cost-controlled production uh, for this mm. guy for, for his rookie scale, and he'll be a good contributor for us. So, like, those are the questions that I wanted to tackle and I didn't feel good about uh, when it came to draft strategy. And, frankly, uh, the, the results were really surprising. And I don't know if you guys want me to dive right into the results or if you had, like, questions before that. Dive right in. Talk talk about uh, your methodology. Yeah. So, uh, so the listeners at home know. I mean, this, this became... Uh, pretty enormous project of data collection and the first thing i wanted to do was look at every single first round pick dating back to 1999 so just the first round only not really interested in the second round at this point um and to me what i wanted to figure out was where does the value lie during the rookie scale so for the first four years of that player's contract how much are they producing how much are they producing relative to an average veteran minimum contract and which teams are really getting value out of these guys and the results were were shocking because if you're not a top 10 pick if you're if you're basically picked from 11 through 30 chances are you're not going to outproduce a veteran minimum contract for the duration of your rookie contract right that's four that, years that blew me away when i first read it right and that blew me away as well i was yeah. like that's pretty insane if you're not out producing a, a a vet minimum contract then what is the value here <laughs> why draft at all right well right why <laughs> draft at all one two you know you, you've clearly failed to extract any value out of that rookie scale because if you're at that point where you need to pay that person at the end of those four years you know if you're at that point where i don't think auto porter is a fantastic example of this but he kind of meets this criteria of like he didn't do all that much his first three years but he showed just enough, and then that fourth year, he kind of popped off, and then you're stuck paying in the max because someone else threw him a max, right? I feel like that is the worst position you want to be in as a team. Right. And while you need players like Otto Porter and, and teams that aren't premier free agency destinations need to pay and retain talent, it just kind of handcuffs you when you're routinely in that situation. And so, again, I wanted to figure out where is the inefficiency here and, and how can teams maximize it? And so point number two was that kind of goes hand in hand with this. It's like, okay, if you're at a situation where these guys really aren't outproducing veteran minimum contracts, then should you be swinging for the fences? Should you be drafting for fit? If you want to extract the most value, where, where does that happen? 
right? Because you, you just find the guy who looks most like Giannis in any class and, and pluck him <laughs> off the street, regardless of whether he has any basketball ability. I feel like Luca is the wave. So find the next yeah. Luca, and you're probably going to be set. Um, Chubby Sylvanian. Yeah, just very. <laughs> I mean, that's that's why Danny's going to get drafted in, in the top five. He's the that's next. That's how Bender got drafted <laughs> after Porzingis. Uh, yeah. So. But basically, you know, you, you want to figure out, okay, like, all right, these guys aren't going to outproduce a veteran minimum contract. Where, How can I extract the most value out of them? And in my mind, there were arguments for both sides, right? Because you're like, okay, let me get the guy that contributes now, that fits now, and then you can kind of plug him into your roster and, and you're, you're going to extract value out of him because he's contributing, he's playing, he fits. But then there's that other side of the coin where you're like, well, if these guys, if the odds are, if the overwhelming odds are this guy isn't going to outproduce a veteran minimum contract, why not swing for the fences, right? Because if you fail, like if, I, you know, if I'm drafting 20th, let's say, and let's say the 20th pick, any given 20th pick has uh, a, an X probability of failing. Well, if you failed swinging for the fences, you know, you, you've lost that pick. And if you failed going for the safe draft pick, you've also lost that pick. But if you succeeded on either of those outcomes, the return on swinging for the fences is just disproportionately higher than when you hit on the safe pick, right? And, and that's where right. the value lies in the draft is, you know, you're outproducing your cost-controlled contract, um, but you're not only doing that, you're outproducing this veteran league average veteran minimum player by leaps and bounds. And I wanted to prove that was a viable strategy by looking at the data. And I don't think numbers prove one thing uh, or another. I think, you know, if you're, if you're in the science, field, uh, science and technology field, if you've done any kind of research yourself, the first thing they tell you about, you know, stats is like they don't prove anything, right? That they, mm -hmm. At most, they can just support your hypothesis and then you do years and years of research. Like prove isn't a word. So like I felt like the data supported the hypothesis that swinging for the fences is the best strategy and drafting for fit and positional fit is one that is bound to lead to failure just because of the overwhelming odds that these players aren't going to be successful on their rookie scale. I think, Schmidt, that that is so fascinating. And let me tell you a couple of reasons why. First of all, I like the fact that A, you did a statistical analysis, but B, you also, you talked to actual front office executives in this article, uh, which we didn't even get into yet, who remained uh, anonymous, of course. The reason I think this is such an interesting conversation for Suns fans as we talk about fit is because I think Suns fans have been, as they start to evaluate the 2020 draft, and I'm guilty of it too, have been lulled maybe a little bit into a false sense of security about the strategy that James Jones took last year. What we know about the strategy that James Jones took last year is he took the most theoretically NBA-ready prospect in the draft, Cam Johnson, at 11, and that is a hit. That, that, I think, is what we would call a safe pick hit in the sense that Cam Johnson ranked, I think, third or fourth in VORP, uh, value over replacement player, which is, is, the, um, is the statistic that you used in your article um, as well, and was very clearly, he appears to be the outlier of a player taken in the 11 to 30 range who is outperforming um, a replacement level player in his rookie contract. But what you're doing is you're saying, don't be lulled into the sense of security there. You're pulling us back a little bit and just giving us the historical data and saying that historically, 
with most guys that you take, maybe a 23-year-old is more NBA-ready than an 18-year-old um, and, and would be quicker to develop. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you're saying if you just plucked a 32-year-old off the street, you would get more value out of that on average. And so it really does kind of, it makes this compelling case to kill uh, the temptation to just go out and, and draft guys based on fit, even if they're, say, you know, juniors or seniors in college. I think it's just really fascinating. Yeah, and there's I a couple that, of... Oh, go for it. Sorry. One of the other statistics that you brought up in the article that I think is an interesting addition to what Sam just said is only 31% of first-round picks sign with their team in their second contract. So that's a, like a really small amount of players that sign with their team in their second contract. And if the average rookie is not playing above the level of a, just a minimum contract in their rookie deal alone, how much value are you extracting out of that player in general if you end up not re-signing them at all? Uh, that's a fascinating thing. And I actually think that actually supports what James Jones did in that uh, a player that's a little bit older, you actually get value out of them. It has to hit, obviously, and it did. Uh, just something for the Suns fans listening. I did look this up just quickly. Scanned basketball reference at all the Suns draft picks since Amari Stoudemire. I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. The only players that signed their second round, uh, I'm sorry, their second contract with the Suns were Markeith Morris, T.J. Warren, and Devin Booker. I didn't find any other players that signed uh, that were drafted in the first round that signed their second contract with the Phoenix Suns. So, kind of an example of complete loss of value for so many yeah. picks year over year over year and yeah. in a lot of those cases tj warren was traded with the second round pick to get rid of him uh <laughs> josh jackson had to we had to attach to anthony melton to get rid of him uh nothing was extracted out of dragon bender nothing was extracted out of marquise chris those are just examples of guys that didn't uh didn't do that but uh sorry i interrupted you there Shana. yeah no i mean if it's any consolation to suns fans this is a league-wide trend really like no right. team right. is good at this and and there's a lot to kind of untangle in this idea of fit and and i spent a lot of the article talking about that as well as discussing it with the executives but kind of kind of the baseline way to approach this is like right when you're looking at mock drafts and let's say you're a a listener of this podcast or a draft Twitter wannabe, um, you know, you're looking at players and their positions and their skill sets. And you're looking at your current team. You're like, man, this player is going to fit really well with Devin Booker, right? This player is going to fit really well with Aiden. And I mean, I use Booker and Aiden, those guys are going to be cornerstone pieces and probably going to be on your team for a while. Typically when looking, but you don't know, but you don't know. But typically, yeah. when you're looking at how any one given player fits with any other players on your roster, I found that a pretty poor way of evaluating fit because if you look at league-wide trends, I, what I did was I measured three-year continuity. And what three-year continuity does is it measures the amount of minutes players played on your team that were on the team three years ago. Basically, measures turnover rate, how quickly the personnel on your roster are turning over every three years. And basically, like 70% of the roster is going to be different three years from now. And if these players aren't ready to outproduce veteran minimum contracts three years into their contract, four years into their contract, you know, why does this idea of fit even matter? Because your roster is going to be yeah. completely different, right? I Right, right, totally. And so this idea of like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to take this position player 
because there's a positional redundancy. I think, I think they should be avoided at all costs. And yet, even despite that, I'm not arguing against you because I think you're right. But even despite that, there is such a great temptation to lean towards going for fit. And let me give you an example with the current draft class. A guy who I like as a prospect, who I've seen on a lot of mock drafts in the Suns range at around 10 is um, Kyra Lewis Jr., point guard out of Alabama. Um, and I'm just, I'm not using him for any real specific reason other than that he is a young prospect. So if you've got a guy like that, um, other than the fact that he's a young prospect and he's a point guard, that's important for this specific example. But say you've got a guy like that, he's 19 years old, he's 160 pounds. Uh, what you're saying, which is backed by data, is that if the Suns just let campaign be their backup point guard for the next three years, they could probably, on average, historically at least, get better value than maybe a point guard like Kyra Lewis, theoretically. Just, a ran- again, a random prospect that I'm throwing out there, but a guy who we know is going to take time um, to develop. The, the unfortunate thing for the Suns, and, and I think why Suns fans struggle with this, is because, well, Kyra Lewis, maybe three to four years from now, could be a picture-perfect uh, spark plug point guard. You know, he's got this end-to-end speed. He could be a very talented bench player, sixth man, potentially even a starting point guard for the Suns. But the Suns don't need that three to four years from now. Um, three to four years from now, they're worried about right now. And they're worried about Ricky Rubio next year at age 31. And they're worried about Devin Booker in year six. Uh, And they're worried about kind of all of this stuff starting to coalesce right now. And that's where the temptation for fit comes into play. So so to turn it back around on you, my question is, how do you resist that temptation to draft for fit? Why wouldn't you maybe just trade the 10th pick at that point? Um, Or what or even like what would you do if you were in the Suns situation and you know uh, the specific context of this team that you kind of need to please Devin Booker a little bit going forward and you need to put your focus on building a playoff team, um, how can that align with your draft needs as well? Yeah, so those are great questions and there's definitely different ways to approach it. One thing I neglected to mention previously, um, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it now, is teams aren't actually good at figuring out who is an up high upside player versus who is a safe pick versus you know who is nba ready who is going to be a project teams are not actually good at this and so while it's easy to look a guy look at a guy like Giannis and be like oh well this guy had all the tools and he had like tremendous passing ability and athletic he's a high upside pick you, you okay you can look at him like that you know there's been lots of guys with tools like Giannis, uh maybe not those exact specific tools but you know high caliber athletes that uh, have all the potential in the world that have not succeeded where you've whereas you've had guys like Draymond Green four-year seniors and who become one of the best defenders of all time right that mm-hmm. how, how do you qualify that as high upside and by advanced stats Draymond's probably one of the most valuable players in his peak right maybe not now he's kind of on the tail end of his um, <laughs> yeah. peak but you know that that stretch with the Warriors he was making all NBA teams. He was defensive player of the year. Even if you were a fan of Draymond Green, you probably would have said he was a safe, low floor, I mean, uh, low ceiling, high floor type player who was probably ready to contribute. It's impossible to say who's really going to pan out. I think Paul Millsap is a great guy like that. He was drafted in the second uh, round. Again, undersized forward who you don't really expect to become an all-star level player. So I, I don't think teams are really good at figuring out who is a high upside versus who is a safe bet. Um, and therefore, a guy like Cam Johnson, 
maybe he he is a high upside player. We don't know that, right? Maybe he turns out to be one of the most valuable players in the draft, and he just happened to be 23, year, 23 years old. And uh, he's billed as a high floor type of guy just because he can shoot and maybe he doesn't have that much room for improvement. We don't know that yet. And, and I think that is an important point for teams to take into consideration because just because you have the right draft philosophy doesn't mean you'll always get it right when it comes to making the pick. And so as far as you know, the Suns are concerned, playing the odds, you have the 10th pick. And historically, you look at the distribution when it comes to productivity for, for picks. There's a pretty sharp decline after the top 10. And so you guys are right on the cusp of that, but the odds still aren't great if you're looking for contribution in the first couple of years. I, unless you're a Luka-level player, you know, you look at even John Morant, his advanced stats were terrible this year. And mm. he's about as good as you can hope for out of a top pick. And you wonder right. how much does that guy actually contribute to winning? I mean, Memphis was good this year, better than they expected to yep. be, and uh, in large part because Ja was good. But th- uh, I mean, um, sorry to cut you off, just for a Suns-related example, that's perfect. Devin Booker was a below-replacement-level player, according to Vorp, in the season that he scored 70 points. Right. He was not. He he truthfully, I know it's a meme that we talk about it. Him not impacting winning basketball. That hasn't been true for a few years now. But for the first couple of years, it it honestly was true that he was putting up twenty points per game that one year and and wasn't impacting winning basketball for a certain point in time. That was true. And this applies to even Kevin Durant. You know, you see these guys that walk into the league and you know they have all the talent in the world. But even those guys, it takes a couple of years for them to figure out and start contributing on a winning team. You know, Kevin Durant, his first two years, he got a lot of the same criticism that Devin Booker got uh, in terms of being a bad advanced stats player, being a terrible plus-minus player. I think that, you know, the first couple of years where OKC only won 20-something games, his on-off splits were terrible. And I forget who it was, but it was some prominent ESPN writer who had penned an article uh, about Durant's advanced stats and they had gotten quotes from other analytics guys and basically they were saying something like you know when guys have advanced stats these bad this bad they never figure it out which is completely ridiculous you know and and we've come to realize that it's just a product of being a young player where young players just take some time to figure it out so the odds are whoever you're drafting at 10 they're not going to contribute in a way you would like them to next year so if the goal is playoff sooner rather than later, definitely the move is to kind of package that pick along with a player for a player that might be ready to impact more now. That, unfortunately, is the sad truth, but it mm-hmm. also kind of opens the possibility of not building sustainably because you do that too much. Of course. You end yeah. up being the Pelicans when they were the Anth- when they had <laughs> Anthony Davis and they shipped out yeah. every single first-round pick they had, which... You know, you look at each of those moves in a vacuum. They're like, yeah, that move, that move made sense. That move made sense. You could justify all of those moves. But the totality of it was crushing because all of them ended up not working out due to injury or, you know, something going wrong here, here or there. And then it all added up to the point where there was just nothing to sustainably build around Davis. Um, you know, even the biggest play they made, DeMarcus Cousins, which everyone will tell you, like, you trade Buddy Heald and whatever the pick was that year, every single time for DeMarcus Cousins. Like, that's a play you make every single time to 
to appease your star and put another star next to your star, but no one can predict him tearing Achilles six months into it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so when you're in a situation like that, your outlets for improving the team become limited, and it's a tricky situation that Phoenix finds themselves in, but you know, they're, they're not alone there. I think the Warriors are in this situation because mm-hmm. the number two pick is not going to help them this year, especially in yeah, this even draft. Even the Timberwolves. Right, the Timberwolves, the number one pick. Great, fantastic. If Towns hadn't lost all of these seasons, you know, I think he's going into yeah. his sixth season. He's made the playoffs once. D'Angelo Russell has made the playoffs once. You know, if, if these guys hadn't been in the positions they had been, then, yeah, maybe Rosas could talk them into a slower timeline. But, unfortunately, the time is ticking, and stars get antsy. And, and that's the most precarious position to be in is when your star demands something of the front office, but they're also not quite good enough to do it on their own. And right. you're starting to f- figure out like, okay, how do I surround this guy with the right amount of talent without mortgaging my future? Yeah. I think that's one of the hardest things. And just to, just to reiterate on your point about not worrying about drafting for fit, the Suns drafted Devin Booker when Eric Bledsoe and Brandon Knight were considered the, obvious starters for the team at guard that is the perfect example to talk about how continuity doesn't there is no continuity in this league right i mean you 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 look at that and you could and people did criticize it at the time and um literally the entire the entirety of what is good about the phoenix suns came from that draft uh and uh yeah it's just a great example of taking the right swing you obviously can argue whether or not that was a purposeful thing that Ryan McDonough did, but it happened, and he still drafted a guard, even though there was two, in quotes, starting guards on the team at the time. Brandon Knight, of course, went off a cliff immediately after that. One of the other things that you talked about in the article that I just want to touch on real quick, and uh, and then we could probably let you go here, but you said over 64% of first-round players traded uh, during their rookie-scale contract were traded in their third or fourth year compared to just 8.2% traded in their first year. And you kind of made the point that maybe this is GMs being unwilling to cut bait on players that are not necessarily working out. I'm like, part of me thinks that happens all the time. I think it happened with the Suns. The Suns are famously had an opportunity to trade Josh Jackson for Kyrie Irving. Now a lot can be argued about that, but one thing that can't be argued is that that would have been a win for the Phoenix Suns. Kyrie Irving is a much better player than Josh Jackson. But a lot of times GMs do take too long to move on from from players that are no good. But I will say it's hard to identify the players that are going to be unsuccessful in that first or second year. Do you have any sort of methodology or any idea on how to fix that kind of mistake? So as far as identifying who's going to break out, who is not, I agree that's tough. You know, uh, I think the Pelicans are in a situation with themselves where no one could have predicted Brandon Inger be this good based off of the three first three years that he had. You know, I certainly couldn't have. Maybe there were a a loud portion of Laker fans like, oh, we always knew he was going to be a star. (laughs) But the fact of the matter is, like, Ingram was not this player before he was um, traded, right? And so if you would have moved on to that guy from year two, you would not have reaped the benefit of year four. And there are a lot of cases where guys just take longer to figure out. But my opinion is, okay, so what? You know, there is a chance, and especially if you're dealing with guys that you drafted outside of the top 10, you know, 
if you drafted in the top 10, chances are you took them for a reason. You, you know what their potential was. You know what their pedigree is. And they're probably worth waiting on, especially because the data kind of supports those guys being head and shoulders above the rest of the draft class, right? So that's kind of a different strategy. But if you're kind of in this middle of the lottery area or even outside the lottery in the 20s, then to me, I say, so what if you miss out on potential improvement down the road? If you have the ability to get greater than uh, greater value than what you basically drafted that player for early, like two years down the line, I think the best example for this is um, Roddy Bois in Dallas, where they kind of mm-hmm. held on to that guy and he was deemed untradeable and he just fell off a cliff, right? They should have mm-hmm. moved in. I think Norman Powell, who's good, but at one time I think people thought he was a future all-star and Toronto didn't trade him <laughs> and they probably could have gotten something great for him. But right. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, I think Portland's in a situation where they've talked up Anthony Simmons where they probably oh, should move yeah. him. You know, if he had any value, they probably should move him. I think you look at young players around the league and if I, if I have the 14th pick, can I flip that into something that's worth more than the 14th pick? Uh, within the first two years. If I can, I do that every single time. It doesn't have to be a draft asset. It can be a different player because, you know, if I'm Atlanta and at 12, I draft Tarian Prince and three years down the line, I realize, crap, I don't want to pay this guy. And he's contributed (laughs) absolutely nothing towards winning his whole three years. And I flip him for salary ballast and then the 17th pick. I mean, that's a loss. You know, that's a waste of a 12th pick to me. Mm And, and so that's not a situation where I want to be in, but, you know, maybe two years where he kind of has his potential to be anything. You know, he's this mystery box where, you know, okay, you, you drafted him, he showed kind of promise, and he's a, this 3 and D type player. You can flip into something else. I say go for it. I think, I think because so few prospects are available at year two, their market should be disproportionately higher compared to three and four because just because of supply and demand. This conversation is so interesting Shimon. i could honestly go go back and forth with you all day i want to make two points we were talking about mike brought up the point of how do you identify the guys who are actually going to pan out and i want to give you credit first of all because you talk a little bit in the article about culture um and one guy that you pointed at in the article you already mentioned draymond green but another great example i think is fred van vliet fred van vliet is not a guy who scouts would be able to identify as having a high ceiling he's kind of short and fat you know but he (laughs) was able to become the, the player that he is today because largely probably because he was on the Toronto Raptors and got to work with Nick Nurse and um, develop in that system. Um, and I guess if you're a Suns fan, the takeaway there is, first of all, Fred Van Vliet doesn't, he absolutely doesn't become the Fred Van Vliet that he is today if he's on the Suns over the past four years. So I think it kind of hammers home the point of um, why James Jones building a new culture, why Monty Williams sticking around with some continuity with the coaching, why that is so important. Um, because culture really matters in terms of the guys who hit uh, and in terms of the guys who miss. The other point I wanted to make, this is more related to what you were just saying, with the power of potential. It sounds like you're saying if guys are most, uh, if guys have the most trade value kind of before anyone would expect them to be traded, that means that right now DeAndre Ayton and Mikhail Bridges are theoretically, under your theory, at their peak trade value. That's that's what it sounds like to me. And I don't know what that means. I don't like I'm not trying to trade either one of them, but I think it's something to put out there for Suns fans of like that's just probably DeAndre Ayton. I mean, if DeAndre Ayton doesn't make any improvements next year, we want him to, but if he doesn't and he looks 
it's just there's such a wide array of outcomes. Like DeAndre Ayton, by the end of next year, could look more like he's going to become the next Joel Embiid, or he could look more like he's going to become the next Greg Monroe, right? But he's going to be so much more solidified in his path that that's what's going to affect the trade value. Right. So his peak trade value would be right now. Right. Maybe you don't want to move him, but I don't think it takes away from your point, Schmidt, that those guys' peak trade value is right now. Right, and I think the other part of this is valuing them relative to their contract. It's no secret that these guys could become way better, you know, five, six years in, but at that point, their contract is not at the rookie scale, and you're paying them a lot more, and you've kind of lost this opportunity for cost control, and you've lost this opportunity to outproduce what their market value is. And I think whenever I'm looking at, okay, how do I extract value from this player? I'm looking at it from that lens because when you're past that rookie scale, you know, those contracts are the wild west. And if you're, if you're drafted in the, (laughs) if you're drafted in the top 10, you just got to be marginally good. And you're looking at a near max, you know, and it sucks because you don't want to be in a situation where you're committed to paying buddy healed 20 ish million dollars a year. And mm. and you committed to that before you even hit restricted free agency because he was good. And frankly, he was good. He was one of the best shooters um, in the league, and you committed money there. But now you're just like, what am I doing? You know. And you don't want to be in a situation where you're on the hook for, like I mentioned earlier, Otto Porter was earned a max. Um, you you look at guys constantly, and after on their second contract, they're getting paid, even if they get paid market rate. You know, their value is lower than what it would be if they were on year two of their contract. And and so when I argue that their value is never going to be higher, it's it's from that point of view. Speaking of trades, uh, what do you guys want for Lonzo Ball? <laughs> what, what do you offer? I have no idea. I, I looked at it. Uh, Obviously, the tenth the tenth pick would be in. Play you guys here. don't need more picks. Is the problem? Though. Yeah, I will take picks, more picks. One in the first I don't round. care. Okay, I'll take more picks. Yeah, I don't okay. care. Okay, all right. What do you think his trade value is? I'm curious how he's viewed outside of this organization. I personally, as a fan, um, I feel like I'm biased, and not in the good way. I don't think he has much value. Um, the tenth pick it is then. Tenth pick, I would I would take that trade. Tenth pick and you would take ten for Lonzo ten Ball, for... even despite the entire thirty minute conversation we've just had about <laughs> players not having value until like year four. Or well, five. Th- I'm selling Lonzo at his peak because he's going to be a restricted free agent and starting guards get twenty million dollars a year, and is he that I don't want to be the team paying <laughs> Lonzo Ball twenty million dollars a year. I mean, look but, at how much Rubio think... got. You you think Lonzo's going to take less than Rubio? I don't see a world where he does. You know? I mean, he's less valuable. I mean, I agree. I don't think there's a world where he takes less money, though. You know, right? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. There's there's a, a situation there where Lonzo is definitely a plus player. You trade him. You say you swap him for the tenth pick. Theoretically, you make the playoffs. I think if you're Phoenix next year, you get 48 minutes a game of good point guard play. But then, are you con- like, are you paying Ricky Rubio and Lonzo Ball a combined 40 million dollars the year after that? And and what does yeah, you'd want to move like? off at least one of those players. But, I mean, for the Pelicans, you know, I take the 10th pick knowing that I shouldn't be in a rush to be good. And so give me two years with that 10th pick. And if I know for sure he's not going to be a star, you know, that that player is on the table. That player is on the table for any other star that might hit the market. Maybe it's Carl Anthony Towns two years down the road. And, you know, I drafted Devin Vassell and that guy looks 
okay. Right. And whoever I drafted at 13, let's say it's Kyra Lewis, you know, it's like Devin LaSalle, Kyra Lewis. And then there's already, you know, Jackson Hayes, Nikhil Alexander-Walker, plus all those Lakers picks. You know, why, that's why I would want that extra pick, you know, not because right. I necessarily believe they're going to turn into a great player. Chances are they're not, you know, and chances are that it's not going to be anytime soon, which I, this is a different conversation where I want the Pelicans to slow down their process and all that. But, you know, that that's why I would do that trade. Right. Yeah, it does feel a little bit like they're trying to do two things at once. Uh, but Schmidt, thank you so much for coming on and confirming my thought that the draft is just a crapshoot and people are only pretending to know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You, you absolutely. I think people know what they're doing. I, well, I think there are people who try a lot harder than, than others at scouting, uh, mainly the guy we're going to have next uh, on our episode. But I do think you confirmed something for me, Schmidt, that um, it's all meaningless and, and why even try <laughs> For sure. It's, it's, hard. It's, uh, it's, it's hard because it was such a good article. But it, it was impossible for me not to come away with it with a, from it with a defeatist attitude. You need luck. The last you thing I want to touch on is is the one variable you can't really control is the fact that you have a bunch of 20-year-olds who are now making millions of dollars, right? right? right. And you just have no idea where that's yeah. going to pull them. Because yeah, you know, some of these guys... Yeah, seven of them meet up in a hotel room together. Who knows what'll maybe, happen? Maybe they go to Hooters <laughs> with the fellas. Yeah. Hooters with the fellas, right? <laughs> and so when you have a, a variable that's that big, you know... It is so hard to predict anything. And, right. and and like I said, you may have done all the scouting in the world and you feel like this guy had all the tools. He could, he could have been something. Um, and maybe that guy isn't something until his second or third or fourth team. Um, yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Well, make sure to follow. What's your Twitter handle? At Fear the Brown. Fear the Brown. Uh, and check out his podcast and anything he writes. What's the name of the draft article again? What is the best way to draft? Yeah, find that one, read it. Obviously, we covered a lot about it, but there's so much more in that article. But thanks again for joining us, Shemin. Absolutely. From tight muscles, tough workouts, signs of aging, to simply making it through each busy day, everyone understands what it feels like to be tense and sore, so everyone can benefit from TheraOne's CBD products. Started by Dr. Jason Wurzland, TheraBody exists to provide you with the best scientifically validated natural solutions to help soothe your body and relax your mind. It started with the revolutionary Theragun percussive therapy device. When Dr. Jason saw the benefits of using CBD in his treatments, he created TheraOne to bring you CBD products done right. A lot of CBD products claim organic, but still contain up to 30% filler, and these fillers are potentially toxic. TheraOne tests their products four times before they get to you. Every product is USDA certified organic, grown in the US, and their CBD extracts are the highest quality available anywhere. Use TheraOne's warming lotion in your morning routine, the cooling lotion or massage oil to recover, body balm for targeted relief, and sleep tincture to drift into a deep night's sleep. And now through Labor Day, Monday, September 7th, TheraOne is offering our listeners a buy one, get one free, all TheraOne products. But you have to go to theragun.com slash blue wire. If you don't love what you get from TheraOne, send it back for a full refund within 30 days of purchase. This is not something TheraOne is likely to do again. Buy one, get one free at theragun.com slash blue wire, but only until Labor Day. Go right now to theragun.com slash blue wire. Sunday, Sunday, Sundays are coming back in the NFL. With NFLSundayTicket.tv, you can stream every live out-of-market NFL game every Sunday afternoon on your favorite devices. 
plus Red Zone and DirecTV Fantasy Zone channels. Never miss your favorite teams and favorite players. No matter where you live, NFLSundayTicket.tv is your key to the most glorious Sundays ever. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE at checkout to get 15% off your subscription. Visit NFLSundayTicket.tv and use the promo code BLUEWIRE. Okay, I'm really excited about this. Joining us to talk about the draft, Spencer Perlman, who writes for the Stepien and was a consultant for the Phoenix Suns in the 2019 draft. Spencer, thank you for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. How are you guys doing? Not bad. Uh, we know where the Suns are picking now. Unfortunately, they didn't move up in the draft. We were kind of hoping, you know, after people said the uh, chances of the Suns winning all eight games in the bubble were 0.05%, but the chances of moving up were 14%. We were kind of hoping those odds would be in our favor a little bit more. Right. Uh, but the 10th pick is not bad. I think this is an interesting draft to talk about, but I do want to go back a little bit first to start. Sure. In the 2019 draft, the Suns had the sixth overall pick. They traded it to Minnesota for Dario Saric and the 11th overall pick and then shocked everyone by taking Cameron Johnson. I think the way that that trade was viewed on draft night and the way that that trade is now viewed specifically after the bubble performance by the Phoenix Suns where people actually got a chance to watch Cameron Johnson, I think, uh, is drastically different. I know that you worked for the Suns. I'm not sure how much you can talk about uh, your involvement in what happened that night, but are you, are you the person that we have to thank for Cameron Johnson? <laughs> um, I'd like to say yes, especially because I'm actually helping out uh, SAC, so the agency that represents him. Um, oh, yeah, wow. with uh, with you know Des Bain and a few other other clients, but I had I had nothing to do with that. Um, in fact, when they traded down from six to eleven, I remember like texting my friends. I'm like, oh, they're they're gonna draft Clark. I'm so happy such a great fit and then when they picked cam i'm like that's unexpected (laughs) um but yeah i mean just you know i can't really say that much about what i did um because you know non-disclosure but it was it was video scouting um there was like a list of players that i was helping do this project for um and uh, you know it's 30 guys and i was pretty much just watching them and doing whatever they told me to do on those 30 guys um or 28 however many it was but it was a lot of film um it was fun yeah like i I wish i could say more but (laughs) right of course is my question for you i guess spencer is it a different approach when you're actually working for a professional organization, um, a professional NBA team, sorry, because obviously you do great work with the Stepien as well, but it has to be a much different approach when you're kind of generally going over scouting reports for the entire class mm-hmm. versus when you're watching these guys under the lens of maybe how do they fit with specific players, like in the Suns case uh, last year, Devin Booker and DeAndre Ayton. So, you know, was was that new for you? Um, I mean, I wasn't tasked with looking at it through that lens. Um Okay. Yeah, you know, like the, the scouting department, they had the analytics department, and then my project was, it was, you know, a little bit of both, I guess you could say. Um, you know, just a lot of video, though. Um, so I wasn't really looking for fit as much as I was trying to make sure I didn't, you know, like I followed every direction I was given to the T, um, that everything they asked me to do, I was able to do, um, you know, stuff like that, but I guess it was cool because, you know, on draft night, I was actually able to say, oh, I had a part of that, both good 
and bad. And you know, I can officially <laughs> say I worked for an MDA team. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. It's also cool. <laughs> what do you think about Cameron Johnson and his performance in his rookie year? I think that he was such an unknown to so many, even Suns fans. Like, we had no idea. I mean, we were all scouting for the sixth pick, like, in our own respective worlds, right? So uh, the idea of drafting Cameron Johnson was sort of out of our minds entirely. And then we got to watch him, you know, as a 24-year-old rookie, obviously one of the oldest rookies, if not the oldest rookie, picked. And a lot of us were surprised at how good he played, surprised at his defense. Obviously, the shooting is something that was a known quantity, uh, but I think for a lot of us, we are overall pretty satisfied with that trade in a way that maybe we weren't at first. What do you think about his performance in his rookie year? Yeah. Um, I mean, it was definitely better, I guess, than even I thought it was going to be. Um, I wasn't really that high on his non-shooting you know, parts of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very concerned about the injuries. Um, just about the position that he would guard, but I mean, you know, he, he hit shots at almost 40% from three. Um, his defense was, I think solid. Um, you know, it's not obviously Mikhail level. Um, but I didn't think it was bad. And, you know, just putting that there, putting this out there, I didn't watch, you know, that much Phoenix basketball being on the East coast. Mm-hmm. I, I watched some games and, um, you know, it was definitely made a little bit easier during the bubble because of the timing. Um, but I didn't follow them as close as maybe, you know, I should have. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't think it, like, it was a good rookie season. Um, I guess I just kind of like leave it at that. Uh, as we move towards now the 2020 draft, obviously that's the main reason you're here today is, is to kind of talk uh, with us about that. Mike and I have, we, we told you, we prepped you before the episode. We're not draft people. We, we have our ideas about some prospects, but um, one narrative that you hear online a lot right now, and and definitely the night of the lottery when the Suns were locked into the 10th pick, Spencer, was the idea that, well, if there's any draft where you really don't want to move up because there's no consensus and, uh, you know, it would be this draft, right? If there was any draft where you'd almost rather have the 10th pick or the fourth uh, than the fourth pick, for example. Um, I don't know if you agree with that notion. I don't know if that's extreme, but maybe give us first just your general thoughts on this draft class. Do you generally agree with that idea of thought? Um, and and like, how do you view the opportunity uh, to pick at 10 for the Suns? You know, this year's draft class is definitely different from other years in that there's not as much high-end talent towards the top of the draft, um, just because so many guys have question marks, whether it's LaMelo and the jump shot and the defense overall and I personally buy the team defense, and I think the footwork can definitely improve. Um, maybe I'm a little bit too in on that just because he's got the size, he's got the IQ, and unlike Trey, he's not 160 pounds at six foot, you know, one two, so he's not going to get just bowled over so easily. Um, and you know, with him, I guess it's just a question of the consistency there. Um, and then someone like Anthony Edwards, who has the shot selection concerns, he has the defensive concerns, he has the motor concerns, and how he can be completely. Um, non-existent just like you know floating in the background for a half and then as you saw in the Michigan State game and the Kentucky game there's you know five possessions in a row where he's just knocking down 34 footers um and you know passing concerns there too so I actually think if you're not really willing to roll the dice on one of those guys um and I don't really think Ant really fits with Phoenix I think Lamella would have um that actually would have been a lot of fun to watch but I think Phoenix is in a good good spot because there's going to be, um, you know, they're going to be guys available there at 
10 who they can pick who fit and it's not a reach at all so you know that late lotto range also um the salary goes down so you're not really risking as much money also which i'm sure would make you know robert sarver james (laughs) jones and all those guys happy it's a weird draft where like for example killian hayes i'll bring him up first i've seen killian hayes as high as number two on people's draft boards and the first espn mock draft that was released had him going 10 to the suns why is it outside of even the first pick, like some people don't even have Lamelo there, I guess. But outside of that, why is it so fluid after that? And and because it's one of those years where, as Suns fans, it's hard to even lock in on guys that we think may or may not be available at ten because there's no real direction as far as who we think's going to be available. It's all over the place, all over the internet, depending on whose opinions you sort of subscribe to. Uh, why is it like that in this draft, particularly? I think. I mean, first of all, I have Killian in my second tier. He's one of three guys actually there. Um, so if he's there at 10, like you run to the stands or I guess you type in your message because it's going to be a virtual one <laughs> um, as quickly as possible. So, I mean, yeah, if he falls past the Knicks, I'd be shocked. Um, but, you know, with respect to the question on the talent level, I think it's really just because it's kind of flat. Um, after, you know, the top few guys um, who might have superstar potential they might not there is a big group of guys who there's not much separation between them in terms of you know floor ceiling um what they can do you know the risks associated with drafting each of them um so i actually think this is going to be a draft where either a you can roll the dice on somebody who you might not be willing to do in any other draft someone like pokusevsky who i love and you know, i can get into that a little bit more in his hit with phoenix or um, you could take someone who, you know, at 14, at 10, you could take someone who might have been, quote unquote, projected to go 14 just because that talent level between four and five and the end of the lottery is so flat. It's not a reach. Um, so I think that's kind of it. Um, as as long as you, you brought his name up, do you want to talk about how do you pronounce his name even? Pokshevsky? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, um, I've yeah seen, I mean, I call I've, him Poku. Poku, I've seen, that's how I've seen it written out yeah. on draft. And this should show people, you know, what my knowledge is. But I just recently saw him as high as number two in someone's big board. He is a big man. So can, yeah. can you maybe explain what you think his fit with Phoenix would be if he's in that range? Yep. Um, first, was it Jackson's board? Uh, I think it was probably Jackson's okay. board. Yeah. <laughs> so, so Jackson and I are actually pretty similar. Like, I haven't put out a board yet. Um, I'm still working on it. And like I had general ideas and where everyone would go and Poku's actually also in that second tier. Um, so I, like, you know, if he's there at two, if you're willing to take roll the dice, I would hundred percent do it. But his game in a nutshell is um, he's long, you know, he's seven feet tall. He's seven, three wingspan. I think he's got a pretty good standing reach. He's a, he's a pretty smart defender, whether it's, you know, rotating it uh, on the perimeter for a steal. He's had some awesome one headed grabs, which you then throw into um, one headed pass kick up. And then he'd keep running the court for um, a transition dunk. So, you know, he's got that. He's got the interior rim protection. Um, he's decently mobile for someone his size. He's definitely still growing into his body. Um, so he's not really that switchable. But offensively, he, like, you know, there are very few guys who I'd actually say are a unicorn. Um, you know, people called KP1 uh, just because he was a tall big who can shoot um, and protect the rim. And that's definitely rare. But even beyond that, having a tall big who can shoot, 
off movement and also pass as the secondary creator or even as the primary creator, that's a unicorn in its truest sense. Like there are not many guys in the NBA who can do that. Jokic isn't running off screens, although he can do everything else. No. Bertans isn't passing the way that uh, Pokersevsky is. So, you know, that's also a weird comp. Um, but, you know, he's, he's a guy who's incredibly big. He's seven feet tall. He's, you know, he's getting, he's got to add weight, but he's running off screens like someone who's six foot seven. He's passing the ball. Hmm. Like like wings do. Um, he's playing can, as the. Sorry, sorry. Can, no, just my big question. I love all that I'm hearing. Can he survive on the perimeter as a power forward in the NBA? I think so. Um, okay. Like you know, I wouldn't want him guarding Paul George or you know whatever team would employ a right. small ball four or you know a three playing a four. But I think the cool thing with the fit with Aiton is you know as as Phoenix ended up playing a little bit more in space, they were switching a little bit more with Aiton. That means Poku might not have to be caught on an island as much. And I'm comfortable putting him out there from time to time, just not something I'd want to do full time. But then on offense, having that big who very few bigs can keep up with on the perimeter, space in the court, and then, like, you know, him and Booker just, you know, like running both of those guys off floppy action is something that is incredibly unique. And I don't really think. Mm. You know, you, you can't switch those guys once they run across each other on the baseline because then you have a big on Booker and you have a small on Poku. Um, like the passing, I, I really think it's a great fit. I don't know if, you know, James Jones and everybody would end up taking the risk because I feel like Phoenix, you know, might think that there's some risk associated with him. Um, I personally think his median floor is actually, or his realistic floor, whatever his realistic outcome is, is a slightly worse shooting Davis Bertans with better passing and better defense, which is a rotation wow. guy. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, mean, I would take him also. Like, I think his ceiling's the highest in the draft. I'm not a gambler, but like, I would take a gamble on him for sure. <laughs> wow. I don't think I've heard that as far as his ceiling being the highest. Uh, that's an interesting one as far as big. One of the questions I think a lot of Suns fans are looking at this offseason is, is trying to prepare for a post-Rubio world. <laughs> there are some guards in this draft, obviously, and some guards that may be available at the 10th pick. One guy I want to zero in on a little bit is Tyrese Halliburton. Uh, we were talking a little bit about Halliburton uh, before we started recording tonight with uh, some comparisons that you don't like uh, when it comes to his games. But what what are you... What do you think about Tyrese Halliburton? How, how do you view him as an NBA player? Um, I, th- I mean, stylistically, I think he's, or at least role-wise, I think he's going to be pretty similar to Lonzo. Uh, he's a connecting piece on offense. He's not someone who you can really run an offense through because like, he's, he's not a downhill guy. He's not really going to create many advantages because he doesn't have an off-the-bounce game. I don't think he'll have one because of the weird form. Um, and he's allergic to the paint in ways that, I don't really think we've kind of seen before, um, wow. but like honestly, the fit with Booker I think is is pretty good because you can play them together and you can play Booker on ball more, play Halliburton as a spot up guy, and that will work. Um, then if you get the defense swing from one side to another, maybe you run a strong side pick and roll with Booker, and then he kicks it to Halliburton. That's where Halliburton's passing will really pop. Like I don't think you can just put him on an island at the top of the key and you know bring Aiden up for a one five pick and roll and asking to create because he's not going to really put any pressure that's going to open up looks. But if you have him attacking mm-hmm. a defense um, and if he's able to get a little bit more comfortable attacking the rim, like his passing is, like, I, I don't think it's Lamella level. I think it's just, it's that tier below. It's elite in its own right. And then 
the defense, he's an excellent team defender. Um, I worry about having him at the point of attack, um, you know, defending pick and rolls. And I think he can probably be targeted um, in the playoffs, but like, because he's 173 pounds or whatever right. he is, 175. Right. Um, like, I, I like the fit on offense and just him and Mikhail on the wings, just keeping the shell and like th- that team defense would be a lot of fun for sure. I think it's I think it's interesting, Spencer, because a couple months ago you did a podcast with Sam Vecini, um on his podcast, um, and and in that one you guys were talking about Killian Hayes versus Tyrese Halliburton, and you specifically said Halley as a guy who maybe doesn't have too much of an in between game. Um, if you put him next to a jumbo initiator, a jumbo creator, that's where he has a lot of value. And from mm-hmm. my Suns fan perspective, as I was listening to that, I was thinking, oh, great, he's great next to Devin Booker. So yeah. it's kind of you know it's kind of reaffirming that you think that like and it, it, it's interesting. I don't know that the Rubio comparison fits perfectly, but in a lot of ways, Ricky Rubio is a guy who's improved his in-between games so much um, throughout his NBA career, um, but still doesn't really have it to the point that you would expect from from an above-average starting point guard. And the reason he was able to survive next to Devin Booker this year is because he shot a career high on catch-and-shoot threes. So it's like mm-hmm. just if you can have kind of another guy handle the load and, and spot him up on the perimeter, that's how you're able to survive. If you're confident that Halliburton can do that, Maybe he doesn't have a super high ceiling for Phoenix, but that certainly sounds like a competent point guard option in a post-Rubio world, which is what the Suns are looking for. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Rubio, like, he, he's definitely got the edge on defense, too. Like, he's... I've loved him pretty much since he was drafted. And as a Knicks fan, I was incredibly upset when he was picked by the Wolves. Um, <laughs> but, like, you know, the point of attack defense, he's Rubio has always been kind of one of those guys who could stick with Steph and actually really bother him. Um, both on and off ball, and I don't think Halliburton has that type of impact. But, you know, just going over the form, you know, it, the catch-and-shoot stuff, I think Halliburton's actually going to translate really well there. Um, like Rubio, he's not a movement guy, but I think Rubio actually might have a little bit more pull-up ability, even if it doesn't use it that much, just because the form is is smoother, even if it's still a little bit rocky itself. Mm-hmm. Halliburton's, like, I don't know how to describe it. It's not a normal transition from you know dribbling to pulling up into the jumper and like I, I just don't really think a pull-up jumper ever is going to happen um and then actually what I talked about with Sam was um he's confident that if they play drop coverage uh Halliburton's floater is going to work and Halliburton's touch is fantastic 100 I'll give that to him but if you're playing in the half court and if Halliburton's hitting you know if his floater gets you 0.9 points per possession on each attempt is that really what you want from an in-between game like right I, I don't think so um i think sam was pretty comfortable with it but i mean m- maybe you're just kind of hoping it gets a little bit higher or he gets stronger uh, if, if you know if you think that's possible i personally don't um like he gets stronger naturally but he's not going to end up being like 190 and just confident attack in the room um yeah as far as point guards that could be available at 10, do you have other guys that you look at as potential good fits for the Phoenix Suns? Yeah, so my number one guy would probably be Kyra Lewis. Um, oh, interesting. Yep. He's, uh, he actually wasn't eligible for the draft last year because he was so young, and he's younger than most freshmen this year, um, which I think is, is pretty cool because he, you know, he was a good freshman last year. I think he, was, he took a big step this year just all over the court. Um, but in terms of his fit with, with Booker, 
he's someone you can play on and off ball. Uh, he can definitely push the pace. He's the right. fastest guy in the draft, I think, from end to end. Right. Um, he has a few things to clean up on the defensive end at the point of attack, you know, with his footwork and stuff like that. But he's he's not someone who, if you screen him, he's going to stay behind the play and just not get back into action. Like, he will actively try to get back. And because he's got, like, I've been told he was tested at P3 last year and his wingspan six eight, not the six six and a half that it's uh, listed at. Hmm. Um, he uses his length very well, and he's he's quick enough to if he does get you know that little hip check to get back, and then again using the length to recover there. But I really like the fit because he can play on and off ball um, next to Booker, and I think that would provide a lot of versatility there. And then um, another guy who's not a point guard um, on offense, but could defend them really well is Tyrese Maxey. Mm. Um, awesome, awesome defender. He's, you know, one of the top finishers in the draft. I buy the shot a lot because he's got fantastic touch. He's a very good free throw shooter. And mechanically speaking, his form is not broken. The issue there is that as he's bringing the ball up, he's blocking his vision and he's shooting out instead of up. Hmm. So if you're able to fix that, which I think, I think, you know, most teams will be able to do that even without completely tweaking the form because you're just raising it up a little bit. You have someone who can be a potential two-way impact guy who play off Booker really well um, and similar to Halliburton if you get him attacking swinging defenses he'll definitely make the most of it because he's heading to the rim and with his frame he's going to power through it and you know possibly finish and or draw the foul now so far we've covered mostly younger guys I think and I think we're right to do that Spencer those are the guys who may be the best long-term fits for Phoenix but I think it's worth bringing up James Jones doesn't have too much transaction history for us to go on, but but he does have last year's draft night, and kind of the Suns' strategy last year, as it seemed, was uh, just going for older players who you're reasonably certain can make an impact uh, in year one as NBA, as like replacement level, at least NBA-level players. Um, mm-hmm. I think it worked with Cam Johnson. It didn't work so much with Ty Jerome, but as we go into this year, given that they swung so much on, on the Cam Johnson pick, do you think it's possible that the Suns just used the 10th overall pick on like a Desmond Bain, you know, like an older prospect, like who you're reasonably certain he can shoot, but maybe doesn't have have a high ceiling long term. Do you think that sort of thing is possible? And and if so, are there any other prospects you, you can maybe think of that could be taken in that range? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I think, you know, the the Des Bain, like you know, both he and Poker are like my two guys, and I guess Xavier Tillman right. also. Um, and full disclosure again, Bain is represented by SAC. Right, right. I'm helping with SAC. Um, <laughs> But, you know, to clear that up, I had Bain in that uh, 19 to 21 range before then. And, you know, maybe he's like 16 to 21 on my board um, since I started just because I, I just watched a lot more film. Um, if he ended up going to Phoenix at 12, I'd be like very happy a, for him as a person because he's awesome. And B, I think the fit there is fantastic, too. Hmm. Um, I think the shooting, I actually think he's the best overall shooter in the draft, period. Um, yeah, that's I why I wanted to ask you. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like Neesmith is a fantastic movement shooter for sure. But the second he puts the ball on the court, he's kind of, you know, I mean, first of all, he's not really moving very quickly with the ball. Um, but his jump shot off the bounce isn't great. And he's not finding guys that they close out on him either. And I think Dez's mm-hmm. ability to both shoot off movement, to shoot off the bounce, he's got a really nice step back. Um, and then on top of that, He's a legitimate creator for himself. Again, you know, the step back, side steps, whatever. Um, but also others and his ability to manipulate the defense without even putting the ball on the court. I think, you know, you could have him at eight in the top of the key. He just 
brings the ball up, he gets his eyes going one way and sees someone out of the corner of his eye, he'll hit him. Um, and again, the fo- the fit with Booker is is fantastic. It's just would they take him at twelve? I don't know. Ten even. Um, yeah, you know, ten. Sorry. Um, you could probably trade down maybe a little bit because even though it does flatten out, him being a senior probably pushed him down some boards and his wingspan being only six four and a half um, doesn't help. But you know, offensively, great on ball, great off ball. Defensively, he's a fantastic team defender. Um, like I, I love that fit. Um, That's what you said about trading down is really interesting too. Just for a quick follow up, my impression was if this is the type of draft where. Uh, maybe one person has a player number 10 on their on their big board and a, a different scout has that same player 35 you know if, if that's just the type of class this is it would be difficult to trade down yeah. um, or rather on, on the flip side of that no one would want to trade up but let's say for instance you know Boston has several picks let's say Phoenix wanted to to flip the 10th overall pick to Boston for 14 and 30 I'm not saying you know necessarily I'm not talking about the specifics of the Boston Celtics but do you think generally speaking those sorts of deals are still possible in this class where someone might want to move up like that? Yeah, I think moving down a couple of spots is going to be a lot easier than moving down, um, you know, 10 plus spots um, and then hoping to get, you know, another early 30s pick just because that early 30s pick could potentially be more valuable than that late 20s pick. Um, right. But specifically with Boston, like, you know, the cool thing, again, going back to the flattening of the talent after, you know, the top four or whatever you want to be top five, um, say Phoenix trades down for 10 to 14 and, um, you know, maybe Bain's not there. Maybe Maxie's not there. Maybe Kyra's not there. That means somebody else who will fit will be there. And Halliburton, I think, you know, again, he'd fit. Uh, I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's definitely a fit. And if you could get Halliburton, then, um, you know, an, an early second, or late first, I would do that because that's where you can find some like really, really cool guys. Like Malachi Flynn, I'm incredibly high on. Um, he's someone who I also think will be an amazing fit with Phoenix and pretty much a plug and play guy with any team. Um, so I mean, trading down, you know, a couple spots again, I think it's possible. Uh, you obviously need to find the right trading partner who's willing to do it. Um, but you know, say someone takes a guy, there's still going to be someone else who's going to be pretty comparable in terms of ceiling. Um, and talent level, even if your guy is taken. Now, once again, a, a reminder to people listening, this is why it's important to read people like Spencer because uh, that's somebody I hadn't considered. And also the possibility of trading back means that maybe just focusing on who might be available at the 10th pick is not the best way to learn about this specific draft. I do want to ask you before we let you go, Spencer, uh, Obi Toppin, I do want to talk about him uh interesting prospect so many people are all over the place uh we don't necessarily like him uh on this podcast as far as the fit on the suns in general i think that there's a lot of teams that maybe could look at the risk of taking someone like obi and the offensive potential there as worthwhile at what point in the draft would you consider him like a high value pick (laughs) because maybe maybe not one two or three right but when does it become more when does it make more sense to take somebody like him uh, honestly, I don't have an answer for that. Um, it's funny because I, I did, I mean, I've done a whole bunch of podcasts this weekend, but I did prep to pro yesterday and we were going through the lottery and with every team, we'd be like, all right, so if you, if you were, you know, so-and-so their GM, who would you target? And I don't think any of us at a single point said we would take Obi here just because it's such a weird fit with, 
like from so many angles. Right. Um, his defense, you know, he does not move well laterally at all. Right. As good as he is as a vertical athlete, he is he is the the inverse on defense. Uh, sorry, he's the inverse on um, left uh, east west. You right. know, moving in that plane. Um, he got a huge number of his points out of the post, which sure you can do in college when you're a 22 year old quote unquote redshirt sophomore, um, and you're going against guys who are simply younger and less developed than you are. But the fact remained that even when he was in the post, he wasn't moving guys. He was getting by guys because of their touch, because of his touch. If he's posting up on somebody who's, you know, if, like Marcus Smart would eat him alive. You try posting him <laughs> up. Marcus is pushing him out to three-point range, and that's that, just because his center of gravity is so high. Um, now, if you can get him where you have someone who's good enough athletically to cover for him and a team defense scheme that can simply cover for his mishaps with rotations, um, and when he is blown off the bounce, take him. You know, I think Golden State, if Golden State's trading down from two to whatever um i trust their infrastructure because you know clay's a good team defender he's a good on ball defender steph's a pretty good on ball defender and he's pretty smart off ball draymond is draymond um you know if obi's playing there i could see that work but it, it's just such a tough fit because you know who does he guard on defense yeah um yeah yeah that's that's the whole challenge i think uh, Suns fans heard the Amari Stoudemire comparison six months ago. Some Suns fans, right? Um, the Facebook ones. And they've sort of locked in on just that comparison alone. And the the more I watch of him, I mean, the offense is exciting. I mean, there are times that he looks yeah. like Blake Griffin. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's just the defense is so bad, and it's bad in a way where it's difficult to picture like a massive improvement over the course of his career. Obviously he will improve over time defensively, but it's hard to fix lateral quickness. Sam, do you have any yeah. more questions for Spencer before we let him go? Uh, sure. How about, how about one more off the cuff, Spencer? If there's a, uh, just because again, this, this draft class is one where so many people have differing opinions. I feel like you kind of already have mentioned a couple of names, but is there anyone else that will be available at 10 that is not ranked in that range in most people's boards, but you think is a good value at 10. So maybe someone that other guys have 20 or below, but, but you think would be a good value at 10. Could you think of any names? Uh, I mean, nobody who's really ranked at 20 or below. Um, okay. All right. Just curious. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I personally would love to see Phoenix trade down a little bit and try to get two first round picks. And then if, if they end up with Dez and Malachi, that's an A plus draft. It's, it's pretty easy to, win the draft and get you know two two way impact guys honestly um, i think you've sold me c- coming out of this like i still like killian hayes and i still like terry's halliburton and and all those guys but i think you may have sold me on that like if you could trade down and get get a couple of guys i think it's a really interesting idea for phoenix just because whether it's the right thing to do or not ac- according to most scouts obviously like it, it just seems like this team is trying to um, please Devin Booker in year six, and if they want to please him by getting a couple of NBA ready prospects, maybe it's a maybe it's a solid play. Yeah. Well, Spencer, thank you so much for joining us. Don't forget to read all of his scouting reports that he's writing for the Stepian. Lots of great stuff there, and you do a lot of work, Spencer. Uh, anything else that you want to plug? Um, no, I mean just follow me on Twitter at sk Perlman, and I'm always putting out videos and what I think. Uh, or useful pieces of information. Uh, others may disagree, but 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, besides that and the step in, I'm, you know, that, that's pretty much all I'm doing with basketball right now. All right, well, thanks again, Spencer. No problem. Thanks for having me, guys. Did somebody say playoffs? NBA and NHL are playing for the gold, and our partners at Bet Online have you covered. Get in on all the action, including a new NBA bracket contest with plenty of chances to win. MLB season is pushing into fall, and there's no shortage of ways to bet with hundreds of odds, futures, and props. So take advantage of the return of sports, and remember, the casino never closes. Check it out all day and all night. Go to betonline.ag and use the promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your welcome bonus. That's betonline.ag. Promo code BLUEWIRE. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.